the old pilot's plain tales, the fears of Elizabeth. We have recently experienced the safest year in aviation history. Worldwide accident rates have fallen to the point where a single accident becomes headline news across the world and even incidents which result in a perfectly safe landing become publicised and made into dramatic events. Imagine then what a furor would erupt should a single airport suffer three major crashes in three months within a mile or two of each other in the same suburb. As unbelievable as it seems to us now, such a thing happened, and it wasn't in some third world country. It was in the United States. The airfield is the very one I shall fly to tomorrow, Newark International Airport near New York, and the suburb that was struck was the city of Elizabeth in New Jersey. The first accident occurred not long before Christmas, on the 16th of December 1951. A Miami Airlines Curtis C-46 Commando airliner was due to depart from Newark, bound for Tampa in Florida. The aircraft was a military conversion. Built towards the end of the war, it was powered by a pair of Pratt & Whitney double wasp engines, one of which had been giving problems. That morning, Captain Lyons might well have been questioning his engineers about the excessive oil use from his starboard engine, since it was nearly twice that of the port one. However, despite the difference in oil consumption, the power plant was still working within limits and the aircraft was declared serviceable. So, early in the afternoon, the 52 passengers climbed on board to be met by the six crew, and Lyons prepared his aircraft for departure. The first hint of trouble that day came as Captain Lyons started his right engine. It took a long time to run up, much longer than the left, and nearby personnel noted that it was continuously streaming a light-coloured smoke. Whether anyone informed the crew is unknown, but Lyons continued with his flight, taxiing for runway 28. The weather was good, with excellent visibility and a westerly wind of 20 knots. At 15.02, takeoff clearance was received, and flight 1678 Mike took off. Almost immediately, the condition of the right engine began to cause alarm, but mainly from the ground. In the Newark Tower, controllers were alarmed at the trail of white smoke coming from the right engine, and as the aircraft climbed slowly away, the tower supervisor hit the airport crash alarm. The controllers put out a call for 1678 Mike to land any way possible, any way they wished. They were cleared back to the field. This was not acknowledged. A well-meaning Miami Airlines captain on the ground watched the aircraft get airborne, and, mistaking the origin of the smoke, he phoned the tower at Newark to tell the crew to keep its gear down. He thought that the smoke must be coming from an overheated brake. Having previously raised their gear, the crew loaded again, a decision that almost certainly sealed their fate. 
The trail of smoke progressively worsened whilst the C-46 climbed ahead for several miles, eventually reaching nearly a thousand feet. Then the colour changed to black and flames burst from underneath the right engine nacelle. The crew started a gentle left turn and witnesses stated that they were flying at a very low speed. The crippled aircraft, still streaming smoke and flames from its right engine, began to slowly descend, but then the fire appeared to go out. By now they were around three miles southwest of the airport and flying over the city of Elizabeth. Just as things seemed to be improving, the flames re-emerged and the aircraft seemed to reduce speed even further, with the right engine propeller turning only slowly. The C-46 was well placed for a safe landing with only a 60 degree turn and around 2 miles to cover to reach runway 06, but it was fast running out of height, being only around 200 feet. At this point the aircraft rolled rapidly left until it reached 90 degrees of bank and then it began to fall from the sky. The left wing tip struck the gabled end of a house. The C-46 continued to roll onto its back and it struck an industrial building before plunging ahead into the bank of the Elizabeth River, coming to rest inverted in shallow water. With around 800 gallons of high-octane fuel on board, a fierce fire developed instantly which spread to the surrounding area. Fire appliances arrived quickly, but it took around 17 minutes to quell the blaze. All on board had been killed. Amazingly, there were no additional deaths, but one person in the vicinity was severely injured. The Civil Aeronautics Board conducted an inquiry and discovered that the problem originated with the number 10 cylinder of the right engine, which failed when the cylinder hold-down studs having been improperly fitted, came loose. Damaged systems caught fire, which then became uncontrollable. It is likely that the crew only partially completed the fire drill in addition to making errors. For example, the first action of the fire drill, which was written on a cockpit placard, required the fuel, oil and hydraulics to be shut off, none of which had been done. Ultimately appeared that the aircraft was mishandled and stalled in the turn whilst trying to turn back to the airfield. The low speed was probably due to the extra drag that came from the lowered undercarriage. At the time this was the second most deadly accident on US soil, but things were about to get worse. Just over a month later, a mere 45 minutes after the girls of Batten High School and Elizabeth had been dismissed from their classes, disaster struck again. Captain Reed had only recently returned from flying airlift missions to Japan, and today he was on a routine flight from Syracuse to Newark, flying an American Airlines Convair 240 as Flight 6780. The weather at Newark wasn't great, with a ceiling of 500 feet, sky obscured, visibility three quarters of a mile in snow, light sleet and freezing rain, with freezing conditions below 4,000 feet. The wind was strong in a generally southeast direction above 1,000 feet, but it decreased to an almost calm condition at ground level. 
The flight had progressed well, and Reed was setting up his aircraft for an ILS approach to runway 06 at Newark, the same runway that the Miami flight had been trying to reach only a month earlier. The instrument landing system was a new system for pilots to use and was monitored by a controller using the ground approach radar. Captain Reed had only flown 17 ILS approaches previously. Flight 6780 was following behind another American Airlines Convair 240, which completed a successful and uneventful landing. Reed checked in with the GCA controller as he passed over Linden at 1,500 feet. He intercepted the ILS beams and began his descent towards the runway. The controller gave a commentary on his progress. 6780, this is Newark Radar, have you five and a half miles out, coming up on the glide path, and you're 900 feet to the left of course. Coming back to the course now, you're now 400 feet left, glide path is good, four and a half miles out. Glide path is good, three and a half miles out, and you're drifting to the right, you're 900 feet to the right of course, and half a mile from the courthouse. Shortly after, the radar return from the Convair 240 disappeared from the scope. Eyewitnesses on the ground saw the aircraft at around 150 feet, skimming along the buildings of South Street, which is aligned about 40 degrees right of the runway. The aircraft's engines sounded rough, misfiring with loud bangs and roars of power. After continuing for about three city blocks, the aircraft ended a steep descent and crashed a short distance from the now empty girls' school. Captain Reed's house was only a few blocks from the crash scene. His wife, pregnant with their third child, heard the impact which killed her husband, and the other 22 on board, plus seven on the ground. The board found no faults on the aircraft, or with the instrument landing system. The rapid descent that took the aircraft from its last known altitude to where the witnesses saw it and the turn it took did, however, give some clues. The propellers were found to be at different pitch angles, 33 degrees on the left, which was consistent for an approach, but 41 on the right. This, combined with the reports of rough running and the icing conditions, gave rise to the possibility of carburetor icing. There was nothing to suggest that it hadn't been selected, but the conditions may have overwhelmed the heating system. Surging of a large displacement engine, particularly when at low speed and with drag devices deployed, may well have explained the large deviation from the correct flight path. This was the very first Convair 240 to crash, and despite an extensive investigation, the board determined that the evidence was inconclusive. However, it seemed that the city of Elizabeth was cursed. Dismayed by two disasters in his city so close together, according to a newspaper account, the mayor of Elizabeth, James T. Kirk, issued a demand for the relocation of Newark Airport to remove an umbrella of danger from the city. Having invested a large amount of money in the airport, the New York Port Authority refused. Just three weeks later, it was the turn of National Airways Flight 101. 
This modern four-engine Douglas DC-6 was departing Newark bound for Miami. It was just past midnight when the Newark controllers cleared National 101 to take off from runway 24. On the aircraft were 59 passengers and a crew of four. Captain Foster was an experienced man with over 11,000 hours and more than 1,000 on type. He and his crew picked up their aircraft at Idlewild, now JFK Airport, and positioned it to Newark before embarking their passengers for the non-stop flight to Miami. Opening up the throttles of their four mighty Pratt & Whitney double wasp engines, they accelerated into the night and climbed out normally. Then the controllers saw the aircraft suddenly lose height and veer to the right, they called Flight 101, asking if it was all right. The crew replied that they had lost an engine and were returning to the field. Losing one of four engines wouldn't normally be life-threatening, but the aircraft continued to descend in a right-hand spiral until the controllers lost sight of it. A few minutes later, having lost radio contact with the DC-6, the tower personnel saw the ominous sight of a large fire growing in Elizabeth near the intersection of Scotland Road and Westminster Avenue. Flight 101 had crashed. Of the 63 passengers, remarkably 33 survived along with the flight attendant, but all the cockpit crew perished. Although the aircraft barely missed an orphanage, it struck a four-storey apartment where an additional four people died. When the Civil Aeronautics Board examined the wreckage, they discovered that both numbers 1 and 2 engines on the left wing were running perfectly, as was the number 4 engine on the right wing. However, for no apparent reason, that propeller was feathered, so it wasn't producing any power. The inboard engine on the right wing, the number 3, was also a puzzle, since it was in full reverse pitch. Engineering records indicated that the red flag, showing that the pitch of the propellers could be reversed, had previously stayed up after takeoff, whereas it should have dropped out of sight when the wheels left the ground. In addition, a fault with the number 4 propeller showed that it could be moved into reverse when being shifted out of the feathered position. The propeller was overhauled and when considered serviceable, it was placed onto the number 3 engine of the accident aircraft. The likely course of events was that during the initial climb out of Newark, the number 3 propeller incorrectly moved into the reverse pitch position, where it would have produced a large amount of drag and caused a significant yaw to the right. The crew incorrectly interpreted this large swing as a problem with their number 4 outboard engine, since the engines furthest from the centerline usually produce the largest swing. However, an engine in reverse thrust would also produce a large swing. Having misidentified the faulty propeller, they feathered their perfectly serviceable number 4 engine, thereby cutting off a source of thrust that might have saved them. The resulting loss of power and large swing caused an inevitable loss of control leading to the downward spiral into the buildings of Elizabeth.
The outcry from the residents of Elizabeth was understandably loud, particularly after Mayor James T. Kirk's earlier demands to have the airport shut down. President Truman immediately closed Newark and formed a commission to look at airport safety nationwide. 119 people had been killed in only 52 days. Many Americans believe that the nation's 60 airports should all be shut down until airplanes stopped inexplicably falling out of the sky. However, the New York Times supported commercial aviation, and in the editorial The Airport Problem, they said, It's not possible to remove landing fields to entirely uninhabited areas. To do so would destroy the very value of air transport. The airplane is here to stay. Lieutenant General James H. Doolittle, the World War II hero and chairman of Truman's Airport Commission, urged that Newark Field be allowed to reopen, saying that the Newark Airport had had just a most unusual accumulation of bad luck. The Commission ultimately agreed, since it was conclusively proved that there was no link between the causes of the three accidents. After all, they said, more people were killed from riding bicycles than from falling aircraft. The airport reopened four months later with a promise from Truman to establish no-build zones extending half a mile from the runway ends and to enact zoning laws to prohibit housing from being constructed within approach areas. Appropriations for airport safety were increased, pilot examinations tightened, and air traffic navigation aids improved. Only two years later, 1954 proved to be a turning point for aviation safety, with not a single American airline fatality reported on U.S. soil.